I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Um, over the past year, it's been a pretty uh, amazing year for us here on Q. We've talked to some really incredible people, discovered a lot of new art that we didn't know about before. But at the risk of sounding immodest, I'll tell you that um, this past year, I've had more people come up to me at like Shoppers Drug Mart or at like pubs or at the park to talk to me about one interview in particular. And it's the conversation that we had from London, England with Mick Jagger. And whenever people ask me, you know, what was it like to talk to him? What was going through your mind? I never really know what to say. I mean, this was someone whose career spans over 60 years, someone who's won every award possible. He's one of the most recognizable people in the world and has one of the most recognizable voices in music history. But when people come up and talk to me, I realize that they want to know because the Rolling Stones music, Mick Jagger's voice, has soundtracked some of the best nights of our lives. And I think for a lot of us, we would have thought they would have given it up by now. I mean, Mick Jagger's 81. Uh, Keith Richards just turned 80. You might think they might stay on the road, do a greatest hits tour, but really more music. And then this past year, the Rolling Stones released a brand new album. It's called Hackney Diamonds. It's the first album of original music in 18 years. And yeah, we were lucky enough to fly to London, England, and go into a hotel and sit across from the man himself and have a chat with him for a little while. I'll tell you this, I was a little on edge because Mick Jagger doesn't do a lot of interviews. And I was a little on edge because this is the first new Rolling Stones album since the death of their drummer, Charlie Watts. And I knew we were going to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, I think that was my favorite part of the conversation when Mick talked about not this rock icon, Charlie Watts, who passed away, but his buddy. Anyway, I'll say more about it, but here's one of our favorite conversations of the past year, my conversation with Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Tom. How are you? Good. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. This is cool. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. I love the new record. Thank you. How are you feeling? How are you feeling putting this thing out? Well, good. I mean, it, it's quite a long time since we finished it now because uh, we finished, I finished mixing in um, beginning of March. So... You know, I was very up there. <laughs> I was really up, and then I've had to sort of put it on the back burner because it takes so long to make the vinyl. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I'm very excited about it. So I'm back into being listening to it again and stuff. And uh, yeah, made pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Just like like about three four weeks, most of it, and then I mixed it remotely with Andy and the mixer, yeah. Sorbon. That was fun. We were three locations. I was in the Caribbean. Annie was in LA. Sorbonne was in, uh, Sorbonne was in um, North Carolina. Jeez. So, yeah, well, that's, we, that's how you do it. But we, I've done that before. But if you have fast internet, you can do that. So you're all live. You're mixing live. She's very different than how we used to be making records, you know. 
Like I heard someone talk about Django Reinhardt's record one time, and they yeah. said back then making a record was like going to the moon or something like that. You know? <laughs> and now you can do it over the, the internet for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in a way, we made the record just like Django Reinhardt made his record. In a way, where we're, this record was made all in the room with the musicians in the room. Ah, uh, you know, so we're all in the room: Ronnie, me, um, Keith, and Steve, Matt Clifford, just blasting it out, and you know, and afterwards you. You go through the takes and say, oh, this is a good take. This is a good, oh, I'll leave that one. And then, then you work on your overdubs. And that's pretty much, you know, how you make a rock record. I mean, there's not a lot of records made like that anymore. Was that I, well, I think that most indie bands make records like that. That's, yeah. ha- that's how you make. But I mean, what's what's easier is um, is the, um, after you've chosen the takes and doing the overdubs and everything, and the editing and stuff is just so much easier now than it used to be. Yeah, there's no tape. There's no tape. Well, it hasn't been taped for ages. Yeah. not for 25 years. Yeah, we haven't used tape. We used tape actually on this album. We used tape for Rolling Stone Blues. Oh, we recorded that on tape. For fun? Or just, just for, for fun, kind of a girl vibe, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's just Keith and me, so we recorded it on um, 24-track tape. Oh, sort of like harken back to the old days kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Any, uh, at this stage, I mean, this far into it, any nerves putting out a record? Well, you always, um, I mean, I think you say, you know that it's, that you like it, you know, that's the first stage and you, you like it. Um, and and you play it to people, you play it to friends, and you play it to colleagues and so on, and you get a vibe of that they that, that they seem to be liking it. But you never know when when people when you come out with something, you never know the mood can be down on you maybe for some reason. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think it's been pretty positive reaction so far. We've only heard people have only heard angry, but um, it seems to be pretty positive so far. Angry is a great song. Thank you. How did that one come together now? Um. I was in the Caribbean, I was just um, on my own and I just started playing it, just that riff. It had it in my head before I was playing it on the guitar and then uh, and then I was playing it to uh, drum machine, you know. Yeah. And then, so it's just a real simple beat. You boom, bah, you know, it's just almost the same beat as, as what we've got. Though I mean, Steve plays it obviously more interesting yeah. <laughs> than the machine than does. The yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah, right. But, right. but it was, it's the same idea. And uh, and then you know, I brought it to the you know Keith and I went to Jamaica with Steve and Matt, and and we ran through and he said, oh, I love it, and he, and he put his own thing on it, you know. Yeah. That was one really easy to come together, you know, and those ones sometimes feel really good that, you know, when they come together that quickly yeah. and everyone falls in on their parts. Yeah. Don't get angry with me I'm in a desperate state I'm not angry with you Don't just fit in my face And then I had to work on the vocals and how to make it more exciting as it goes on, you know, to change the vocal lines and stuff. 
Uh, yeah. It's a good one. I love I loved seeing you. I, I love that it's a Jagger Richards. I loved seeing you two on stage together because I've been doing research on for this interview for, I'll say a month. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, like reading books and reading articles and yeah. reading interviews all the way back to like 62 up till now. And it's funny to see the Keith thing come up over and over again. You get asked it in like 65. Yeah, you yeah, get yeah, asked yeah. it in like 71. Yeah, yeah. You get asked it in like 83. Yeah, yeah. You give a different answer every single yeah, time. And seeing you and him on stage yesterday at the press conference, just your arms around each other was so so beautiful to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like where, where are you now writing songs together and, and all that? Uh, I mean, it's so different now. I mean, because we used to be, we used to live in the same apartment you know, when yeah. we started off. Um, writing songs together and so we'd be I, I wouldn't even play guitar half the time I'd just be writing the top lines for Keith's chord sequences and you know and he would sometimes suggest melodies and I would come up with all the words and but you know, this that's a long time ago and things evolve and change and you know, um you know, I like to I like to write songs on my own, you know, I don't live in the same continent as Keith. He doesn't do Zoom, so I can't write on Zoom with him, you know. Yeah. So but still when we got together in Jamaica and started jamming these things around, that was like, you know, it's the same as we always have been, you know. So it falls back into that thing where, you know, you get a bit, you know, what about this bit, you know? What do you think about this chorus? Should it go here? Should it go there? Or, you know, like in Whole Wide World, for instance, um, he kind of sh he shortened the verse that I'd written. So instead of playing like four bars on every chord, he, he made it into two bars on every chord, which made it more kind of funky. So it, it, it's um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a kind of interesting partnership. But you know, um, Andy also helped me a lot with the, you know writing. You know, helps me by you know telling me oh you know this you could do that better. You know that still that, he'll still it, do that to you. Or Andy, what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, Andy. You know, right, yeah. it, so I listen to what outside people tell me. You know, I, I'm not like so kind of like entrenched that if. If if Annie said to me, "Oh, those words are great, maybe you could do a lot better," I'd just go back and rewrite them. I'd be terrified to say it to you, to be honest. He's not terrified to say it. I wouldn't want to be tasked with it, to be honest. No, but the, go it, in and tell Mick that no, it's but, like, yeah. No, but know? that's what's fun about working with people. Without, I don't mind if you know if if Keith says to me that that could be better, I'll make it better. If Andy Watts says it to be better, I'll try. Right. If, if I disagree with them, I'll tell him I disagree with them. Right. Okay, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the McCartney. It was on this record yeah. too. He plays he plays bass on uh, a track on the record. Yeah, yeah, he does. How did that happen? Um, well, uh, Paul was in LA when we were recording, and he was supposed to work with Andy one week. And Andy had said, "Look, I'm working on this record. For, if it takes six months, I'm I'm going to do nothing else." And then he says, "And suddenly we get to this one week. So I forgot to tell you I was supposed to work with Paul this week." So we said we worked out the schedule, and so. So he said, when we get Paul to come in and play on something? So um, so I said, on what? You know, what is what? I've never played bass with Paul. Yeah. I've sung with him, but I haven't played bass. So I don't know what he's going to play. And we, 
we suggested he played on this sort of punk tune, you know. Yeah. So, and I didn't know how it was going to work out, but it, he really rocked it and he loved doing it, you know. He said, oh, it's great playing with a band, you know. He says, it's really enjoyable playing with a band. Was he in the room with you? Was it yeah, it was all in the room. We're all in the room playing together. So there's you and Keith. And yeah, I'm playing, I'm playing guitar, Keith's playing guitar. And Paul McCartney's playing bass. Paul's playing bass, Ronnie's playing guitar. You understand that that feels meaningful to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I understand it's a session and yeah. you're musicians playing together. Yeah. You understand that historically, yeah. that feels meaningful yeah. that you yeah, guys yeah. played together, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, it is, and it's fun, but it seemed so natural, you know? It didn't seem... And Paul was so natural and, and relaxed and, and he enjoyed it and we, we knocked it out really quick. Did you guys have a good relationship going through this whole thing? Uh, who, who? You and Paul. Going through what thing? Well, your, your lives, your well, whole life. But Jesus, Mick, you know what I mean, right? Like, I think if you look at like, because again, I'm doing crazy amounts of research here. And again, you want to talk about how much Keith comes up, the Beatles come up a lot, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. And I find that a lot of what got written about in say like 70s and 80s, uh, I guess up until the early 80s, was you and John. Yeah, well, John was a great friend, close friend of mine. Yeah. And, you know, he was very acerbic and funny and witty and intelligent and everything. And, but I also knew Paul, who's a different kind of personality. You know, I've always been friends with him. And um, we don't see each other that much. But we do sort of text each other and, you know. And um, so we sort of keep in touch. So, I mean, I've always got on well with him. And, uh, and Ronnie and Paul also see each other quite a lot. So we we have this sort of communication. Um, nice to hear Stevie Wonder on the record. Yeah, on he's on Sweet Sound of Heaven, and he opened up for you guys. Yes, we talked about that when he came to the studio. <laughs> he said, "I haven't really played with you guys since we played on tour, and we played um, we played uh, a medley of Satisfaction and Uptight." <laughs> it's the okay. same beat. Da, na, na. Yeah, I can hear it. It's man. the same beat. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it. It's the same beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same beat. It's that beat. Da, 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 da. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So we talked about that, and it was very funny. What do you remember about those tours for him opening up for you? Well, a lot. I mean, it was a great tour. We had, I think, we had Stevie, we had Ike and Tina Turner, we had BB King. That was an amazing lineup. Yeah. <laughs> on a tour. Yeah. On an arena tour. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was. It was amazing. She would never say where she came from. Yesterday don't matter if it's gone. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I'm talking to Mick Jagger about the first new Rolling Stones album in 18 years. It's called Hackney Diamonds. This is an important record and a meaningful record to Mick, not just because it's their first album of original music in, in 18 years, not just because people were wondering whether they'd ever make an album again, but because this is the first album that the Rolling Stones made without their longtime drummer, Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts died in 2021. And when I sat down with Mick Jagger, it's very clear that this is not somebody who's a rock icon mourning another rock icon. 
This is a guy from England who's had a remarkable life mourning the loss of his buddy, of his longtime friend and his collaborator. And that's where things pick up. Here's more of my conversation with Mick Jagger. I've sort of been trying to figure out how to talk to you about this part. Is and only not because it's uh, controversial, but only because it's a bit emotional, to be honest, with, with Charlie uh, on the record. I was so happy when I looked at the track listing, yeah, and I saw that that Charlie plays on this record. Yeah. So these are older Charlie. Uh, 2019. It's not that long ago. No. Over the last five years, we've done quite a lot of recording with Don Was, but we it had been a bit sporadic, and we haven't really finished any. There's a lot of unfinished material, you know, and. Um, songs that hadn't been done anyway. So when we were putting this together, we said, well, which ones do we like? You know, which ones do we think that will fit on this record that Charlie's on and we finished those. And so we put these two these two tracks we picked for Char- with Charlie on. I mean, I, I love both the, I mean, I love both the tracks. I didn't just pick them because Charlie's on them. Kind yeah. of, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would have, yeah. but they're, they're both, um, you know, contenders for this record, you know. Yeah. What was he like? Charlie? Yeah. Wow, that's really a hard question. I mean, I'm, I, knew, I knew him since I was 19, you know. And I hung out a lot with Charlie. He was like one of my sort of close friends. And we had, a, Charlie and I had a lot of interests outside of just playing a band, you know. And well, we, we used to, we loved sport, you know, football and cricket. Charlie and I used to go to cricket together a lot. Um, we would talk about football. He's a big Tottenham fan, Arsenal fan. It's like a big competition. Um, Charlie's very knowledgeable about that. He used to play football when he was a kid, pretty good, much better than me. And um, and uh, and Charlie and I liked all kinds of different music, you know. So Charlie, yeah, you know, everyone says, "Oh, Charlie, Charlie always loved jazz." Well, he did love jazz, you know. He he really loved jazz, and he introduced me all kinds of. I used to love jazz too when I was a teenager. I, I was a real jazz fan, and and so I knew quite a lot about jazz. Not like him, but you know that jazz was the hip thing to like. You yeah, know? kind of pre-bop, right? But when yeah, it was, yeah, when it yeah. was sort of well, more accessible. Kind well, of. yeah, and but I liked, you know, I liked post-war jazz. You know, yeah. I used to like Jerry Mulligan's sound, and you know, I used to. Listen to all that kind of stuff, Sonny Rollins, you yeah, know, cool. who played on one of our records. Once. Yeah, he sure did. I was, you know, so I like that kind of music. Um, you know, a lot of it I didn't like, you know, but you know, I liked the Cannibal Adderley. I loved Charlie and I used to go and see Cannibal Adderley. Oh, cool. Um, I remember Charlie and I once going to see him at the Apollo, and we would we, we would really go and you know Charlie and I would go and we'd go, oh Cannibal, Adderley. we'd go and see him in a club or in a theater, where, you know, and. Um, so Charlie and I had a lot of those kind of interests, and we also liked. Um, Charlie loved, you know, beautiful objects. You know, he liked antiques. He liked furniture. So we talked a lot about things like that. You know, so we had a lot of interests in common apart from just being a band. You know, but I mean, Charlie liked all kinds of music. He he liked African music like me. He liked reggae music before. Everyone had even heard it. Yeah, know. before before Bob here. Marley, Ch- Charlie and I were listening to reggae music before it was like mainstream. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we 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 would be have a lot in common with that stuff. The reason I'm interested in it, I suppose, is because to to the world, 
Char Charlie of the Rolling Stones died, and how does the Rolling Stones go on and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But I thought, my Jesus, like, A, you lost your buddy. Yeah. And you lost a buddy who's around your age. Yeah, exactly. How was that for you? Well, it's, it's very difficult to lose friends, you know. Um, as you get older, you lose a lot of friends. And not only friends, you, you, it's very weird because you not, okay, they're not friends of yours necessarily, but they're people that have been in your life, whether they're musicians or, you know, that you've admired or actors or wherever, you know, whatever they are, but lots of people of your age group yeah. or, or generation, you might say, have all gone. And then, but, um, um, which is why I think I've got a lot of friends that aren't in my age group. <laughs> they stick around a bit longer. They were, yeah. they were younger people, you know. I mean, I don't want to just hang out with younger people, but, I mean, yeah. a lot of the people in my generation are no longer here to hang out yeah, with, so what am I going to do? Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, it's, a, it's a big loss when you meet someone, you know, for like 60 years, you know, and work with. It's a huge loss. I'm not Dr. Phil, but is it scary to lose someone... So close to you? Are you someone your age who's close to you and you've been up through the whole thing with? Yeah. It, I don't know if it's scary. It's very sad. Um, um, of course, it, you know, you think about your own mortality, but you think about people think about that from much earlier ages than mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I you know, you people usually think about mortality when you lose your first pet. Yeah. <laughs> That's when it hits you. Um, then you might lose your, you know, grandparents or something. But... Uh, so, yeah, so, um, but these things, I mean, it's part of life, you know, and, and um, you know, we, we had a lot of sadness and Brian Jones died, you know, but yeah. a lot of young people died in their 20s, you know. Yeah. And um, famous musicians that we admired, you know, Jimi Hendrix, people I love really dearly, yeah. you know, um, died early and, and it's very sad, but there, it's part of life. Can't make this all about death. That's the name of the show. You don't know them? Did, no one told you? <laughs> Dr. Death called, will now called, speak. This is called Tom Power on Death. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know that. That's why I'm Irish, right? That's why, that's why we talk about these things. It's the depressive part. That's the, I mean, that's all I got, buddy. That's all, look, look at me. This, this, this beard doesn't come from joyful feelings. I got to tell you, over the past few months, I've been thinking a little bit about how grateful I am um, for that particular moment with with Mick Jagger, uh, where he opened up a little bit about about Charlie there. You know, in honor of Charlie Watts, why don't we listen to some some uh, classic Charlie Watts Rolling Stones music? Pay, pay attention to the drums on this one from 1978. This is the Rolling Stones and Beast of Burden.
You know, listening to the drums on that one, maybe Charlie mixed that one because I've never heard such a loud snare in my entire life. Uh, Coming up, more of my conversation with the legendary Mick Jagger. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome back to Q. Happy New Year, by the way, if I haven't said that yet. Uh, we're in the middle of one of our favorite conversations of the past year, uh, my chat with Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones that we recorded in London, in England. Uh, we were there on the occasion of the Stones' first album of new music in 18 years. And we talked a little bit about what it's like to write with Keith Richards again. We talked a little bit about losing their good friend um, and drummer, Charlie Watts, because most bands don't make it 60 years. Most bands don't make it like six months. For the Rolling Stones to last as long as they have, um, it's been a source of a lot of discussion and speculation over the years. What do they know that these other bands don't? I mean, this band has gone through drug addictions, being thrown in jail, the death of bandmates, not to mention just how much technology and music and taste has changed over the years. So I, I had the man in front of me. I figured I'd ask him, how do you keep a band together that long? It's an amazing feat, man, to see this band go on for 60 years. I mean, yeah. and I'd like well, to, to think about everything you just told me, to be honest. We're not going to talk about death, <laughs> but think about losing Brian. Yeah. Think about uh, losing Charlie, but also thinking about the changing of the music industry. You, yeah. know, you and I were talking about the early days. And then you want to talk about uh, vinyls to eight tracks to tapes yeah. to CDs to streaming to yeah. TikTok to concert tours meaning so much to concert tours who knows yeah. what they even mean anymore. Yeah. You're not going to have an answer to this question, but I'm never going <laughs> to I'm never going to uh, get a chance to ask it to you. So I'm going to ask it to you anyway. How do you lead a band through all that? By staying abreast of what's going on. What do you mean? Well, you you have to kind of vaguely. I'm not saying I'm slavishly um, trying to you know be at the cutting edge of everything, but you have to understand how things work, you know, in, in the current world. And that doesn't just apply to the music industry, it applies to lots of things. I mean, you know, driving a, driving a car is a different experience driving a car in 1960. Yeah. So, and, and the record business, like all businesses, uh, it changes a lot. I mean, the record business being a business of technology, never stays the same it never stayed the same ever you know so we when we first started in the record business it was it was about only singles it was about 45 pre-album yeah, yeah. there were albums by um pop acts did not sell what sold was um show albums like south pacific and frank sinatra might sell albums. this kind of this yeah, kind of thing, thing yeah. um that was the, what sold albums, and then suddenly the Beatles came along and they started selling album, pop albums, so it was a huge change. Love, love me do. You know I love you. I'll always be true. So please love It was just about top 40, it was about selling singles, that's all there was, and of course no money in that. 
uh, you know, really. And then record companies rather belatedly, they, wow, they, because there are millions of vinyl, you know, of pop artists, and suddenly that was a huge change. Then the CD revolution came along, everyone threw away their vinyl, and everyone bought CDs of what the vinyl they had. <laughs> so, yeah, and they had eight tracks, and we had cassettes, and, blah, 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 blah. and it changed all the time, and then back to vinyl. And then, uh, and, and streaming, you know, is like much maligned, but the interesting thing about it is that people of all generations can access music from all periods. Whereas before, if I wanted to buy, you know, an old blues record from 1955, that was really difficult. I had to do mail order, I had to go into a specialist shop, even though I had plenty of money. I used to go and buy it now, I can just, there it is. It's right there. So what does that mean? Well, that means that, you know, kids of 16 can access anything they want. It might also mean that it's a little less special. I think about you guys that when you had to order those chess records. Oh, yeah. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother's child gonna be the greatest man alive. You had to, your identity was those things because they were so hard to get. Yeah, man. so hard to get, which makes them more desirable in a way because they're, they're, they're so hard to get and I've got one and you don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a collection, you know, of, of rare goods. Isn't that the story of you and Keith? Isn't the story of you and Keith that you had those records? Yeah, we, I had the rare records and yeah. he didn't have the rare records. Where'd you get them? How do you get those rare records? <laughs> you know, I, I, he probably had some rare records, but, you know, it was... There was like one or two shops in, in London you could buy them and they were hugely expensive because they were imported and the guy, you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. like, and you know, money, it was, it was expensive. And um, you couldn't buy just as many as you want. And um, to discover, and if you're a musician, you've got to listen to this stuff and get it and part of your uh, playing ability, listening to these, trying to copy these licks and how is he going to sing that? What's that song, you know? Uh, Robert Johnson, these things like that. Well, they're not like available, you know. I went to Georgia. Fell down on my knees. But for all its people complain about streaming and everything, I think it's amazing, you know, that I can find things that are really rare yeah. or interesting that I've never heard. But what I find interesting about you is that I know a lot of people, uh, and I'm not going to say names, but I've talked to people who are of your generation in music and some who are still making music, yeah. and a lot of them are sort of mired in nostalgia. And yeah. they'll say to me things like, Tom, it was never as good as it was back in there. Or like, I'm not even going to put my stuff on, I'm not even going to put my stuff on <laughs> Spotify. Or, you know, they get, they get uh, sort of uh, fortified in yeah. an era, but you never seem to do that. Well, no, but you don't want to do that. That's ridiculous. Because you're available on everything, you know. You want to buy a, a vinyl Rolling Stones record, you can buy one if you want to but buy But not just format, kind of everything. Like yeah, the Rolling Stones are never, you never allow them to be fortified in like a retro thing. Yeah. That's no, no. important. Yeah. I don't want it to be in a retro thing. And uh, this album, the, the, the Hackney Diamonds album, I mean, when I talked to Andy, I mean, Andy's like a pop producer. That's where he's made his name, you know. And I was going, Andy, you know, I made all this pop record, but... He loves rock and roll, knows all the history backwards, you know, can play all the licks, can play all the Rolling Stones licks himself, yeah. you know. It's pretty impressive. But I said, Andy, I want it to be true to the school, you know, I want it to be like a Rolling Stones record, but, but, it, but it's got sound like it was recorded this year, you know, the, the 
sonic levels of, and the the way it sounds has got to sound like now. We don't want it to sound like 40 years ago. And of course it doesn't. It sounds like now. The clarity of it, you know, and the fidelity of it. And if you listen to it, compare it to an old Rolling Stones record, it's very, very different. Very, very, very different. Yeah. But still has that heart of the it's music. Still, it still has all the things of the Rolling Stones. Yeah, but- plus I think people are wrong about you guys. I think people think, call you a great, the greatest rock and roll band and, you know, whatever. And I know that was just a thing someone oh, said on stage. Yeah. But you've never just been a rock and roll band. No, not at all. No. It's not, it, 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 the Rolling Stones, one of the most interesting things about being in the Rolling Stones is we talked earlier before we started recording about um, the Chieftains. Yeah, and Irish playing folk Irish music. music. Yeah. You know, the Rolling Stones can play that music if we want. We can play it. And, and uh, we do. We play different styles, you know. We, we, and we go, of course, there's fashions and styles. And Keith and I went through a whole period where we were listening to the incredible string band and we got very influenced by this band. kind of music, yeah. you know. My sweet Lady Jane When I see you again Your servant of I And will humbly remain Keith and I were very in, into folk music, border ballads, you know. Um, you know, I would go to Ireland and I'd sing, you know, I would sing, you know, Handsome Molly, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, after dinner you're asked to sing something just on your own. Yeah. I would sing Handsome Molly or I yeah. would sing, you know, um, Matty Groves or oh, something yeah. like that, you know. While sailing around the ocean, while sailing around the sea, I dream of Handsome Molly she might be and and Keith and I were 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 really into it and and that's all part of our you know folk music country music American country music blues for me you know I like dance music you know I, I like dancing so I you know I like dance music I mean, I can only listen to techno for like an hour, but that's my max, you yeah. know, in a club. But I, but I mean, I like all kinds of music, and I'm, you know, I listen to lots, lots of African music, mm. old and new, you know. So I, I, as far as I'm concerned, and the Rolling Stones, we can play anything. Yeah, and you can hear that on this record, and I, I loved it. And we got to, I, I'm getting the boot. But I'll tell you, man, I love the record. Thank you. Uh, I hope it's not the last one. No, it's not. We were two thirds uh, through the next one. So shall I see you again in a couple of years? Yeah. Yeah, right. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tom. So, I, uh, you'll last. I might not. That's oh, the yeah, thing. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Mick. I appreciate it. Thank you. God love you. Young interviewers listening to this, that's called strategy. Yeah, I'll see, I'll see you again. I'll see you in a few years. My conversation with Mick Jagger, the new Rolling Stones album, Hackney Diamonds, which is very good. I'll say much better than it had any right to be, like much better than it never needed to be. Uh, the new Rolling Stones album, Hackney Diamonds, is out uh, everywhere now, wherever you stream your music. Go check that out. The other episode uh, we put up today as part of our greatest hits here on New Year's Day is my conversation with the uh, author Elizabeth Acevedo. This is going to sound grim for the new year, but we talk about the idea of a living wake. And I promise it's not a it's not a super bummer conversation. Go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.